Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing in our series on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So let's join Dr. Newfeld as we turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, with a message entitled The Company of Overcomers. There's a very curious verse tucked away in Matthew 24, 24. Jesus is speaking about the end of days, and he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, the New International Version tries to make that phrase even more explicit. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. You see, for the NIV, the emphasis is put on the impossibility of deceiving the elect. The elect, because they are the elect, will not be deceived. I find all of that very encouraging. And might I add, I think that that verse should be a tonic spoken against the hopelessness that is so often evident in Christian circles today. You know, I recently read a book which argued that Western culture had become so immoral that the church most likely will not survive. And indeed, the author laid out the evidence. Sexual immorality is now viewed as normal. The absence in many churches of a clearly articulated theology and in its place, the appeal to ministering to people's felt needs. The reality that we can no longer either look to government or wider culture to agree with, or at the very least be sympathetic with our moral foundations. The amount of youth simply abandoning the church. The idea that church is optional, that is, you can be counted a Christian without one. The profound absence of the Bible, Bible knowledge, not only in wider culture, but often in the church as well. Well, I don't think I'm saying anything that you haven't heard many times before. And I'm not arguing that these concerns are not valid. You know, our present day is indeed a day in which the church of Jesus Christ is fighting for her very existence. But might I add that there never has been a time in the history of the church where that has not also been true. Indeed, you need to do no more than read your Bible and, and read about the fight against idolatry in Israel to the frightening prospect of the Babylonians completely destroying the people of God. Or, or go to the New Testament, read Ephesians 6, and read about the rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, and about the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, and all of that battling hard to destroy the church of Jesus. Yep, there's a, indeed a great cosmic conflict, and we must fight with great intensity. And for the seven churches of Revelation, they felt this fight very keenly. And according to Jesus, as the day of his coming draws ever closer, it's not going to get easier as the forces of deception and lies seek to draw believers from the faith. And yet Jesus' words from Matthew 24, verse 24, if that were possible, You know, as we've been studying the book of Revelation, we've noticed that the breaking of the seven seals are not a description of the seven-year tribulation at the end of time. Rather, the seals show us what life will be like on this side of the Lord's return. We are awaiting the day of the Lord, or the opening up of the scroll, a time that yet lies before us. And as the narrative in Revelation takes us to the time of the opening of the scroll, we, we come to an interlude, something we need to know before we can go further. 
The first is that the 144,000 or the full number of God's servants are sealed. And then in the last part of chapter 7, the scene changes from the servants of God being protected, even as we hear of martyrdom, their blood poured out at the base of the altar. Now the scene depicts them not now in the heat of battle, but at the end of the age, standing victoriously before the throne room of God. I mean, think of it this way. The first part of Revelation 7 pictures the 144,000. This is the church standing at the threshold of the Great Tribulation. Then the second half of the chapter pictures the church having passed through the Great Tribulation. Some have been martyred, but all are victorious. So I'm reading Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So let's study this one line at a time. First, would you notice a great multitude? Does it seem to you that only a few people are going to get to heaven? Well, look again. A great multitude. And then second, would you notice where they're from? Jesus had said that the gospel would be preached to every nation and then the end would come. And what John sees here is at some time in the future, men and women from the nations of the earth stand before the throne. And when I read that, I I can't help but reflect on the promise that was given to Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 5, God is speaking to Abraham. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And indeed, the gospel of Jesus. I mean, we have exactly the same thing. The seven churches who read this letter would have been reminded at this point that they're more than simply an oppressed little community. The gospel of Jesus that rings out from them will produce a greater harvest than they had ever imagined. And if I might, can we in our day not hear this as well? Instead of constantly thinking of ourselves as a helpless community in which, you know, a wicked world is seeking to grind us down, might we not see this vision that comes from the end of days? So it seems that the Christian feels at all times as if, you know, we're on the right side of history. And in the end, the company surrounding the throne will be a larger one than than we had ever imagined. Now let's go on to the next line. The company before the throne is standing there in white robes. And when we read that, we're reminded of Jesus' promise to the believers in Sardis. He tells them in Revelation 3, verse 4 and 5, that the faithful ones will be dressed in white. You know, white's the color of purity, signifies holiness. They've not defiled themselves with the world. And then we notice that they're holding palm branches. Palm branches are a sign of victory. You're going to remember the crowds that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. The palm branches then were held in anticipation of the victory of the Messiah. But here in this scene, they're held celebrating a great victory that has now been won. The task is now complete. And then dressed in white from every place and culture of the earth, waving palm branches in worship, we hear their shout. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. I I love that. 
Another great company of overcomers is taking any credit for their victory over this world. Salvation belongs not to their efforts, not to their steadfastness, everything that they've accomplished, having safely passed through the great warfare with the world. All of that is a reflection of the one who sent his son and a reflection of the one who was sent and gave his life for them. And as the saints in heaven worship, the elders, the four living creatures, indeed, all of the host of heaven joined with the ransomed saints, and they all begin to worship. And the words of their song, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power, and might be to our God. While those words remind us of a scene in heaven recorded in Revelation 5.12. You remember in that scene, the Lamb, that's a reference to Christ who is crucified for us, approached the one seated on the throne. He takes the scroll from his hands and prepares himself to break the seals. And at that moment, the thousands upon thousands of angels before the throne saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, now that praise is almost the same as the one the redeemed saints sing at the end of time. The only difference is that the word thanks replaces the word wealth. But with that small difference, the praise is exactly the same. You know, from that, we're left with an impression. The impression is that what is expressed in worship before the Father is exactly the same as that which is expressed in worship before the Son, that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. But what also strikes me here is how precious it is to be among that throng. You know, when I read the great multitude before the throne, I'm reminded of the only thing that ultimately matters. It is this, to be included in that throng that stands before the throne in the final day. We ought to remember that the only thing that matters is to be among that great throng in the final day. I don't think that I know how to say that often enough. I'm reminded to tell you, my listener, that whatever else happens to you in this life, just you make sure that you are counted in that throng. Because to be in that throng is to be counted among the overcomers who give praise to God and who have endless and eternal life. That's what ultimately matters. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us next February for our 2018 Celebration Caribbean Cruise. One week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, our very special musical friends, Shane and Angela Weeb, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of relaxation, adventure, reflection, and worship. These events have been incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot today and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca. And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada ministry supporters, no ministry funds are used to facilitate ministry vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by the participants. I'm reading Revelation 7, 13 to 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? 
And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So let's start at the back of this passage. We read that this great multitude has washed their robes and made them white in the Lamb's blood. Now, at the outset, that seems fairly straightforward. I mean, this is the language of symbolism. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 19, right before God appears on Mount Sinai and gives the Ten Commandments, all of Israel is told to wash their garments or their clothing. They are to appear before God without any dirt or any defilement. It's a symbolic act. Now, in Revelation 7, that image is taken to the courts of heaven. No one who stands before God can appear with any defilement or sin that's attached to him or her. God allows nothing unclean into his presence. And in these words, we find the heart of the gospel. When sinners confess their sins and believe that it is their sins that keep them from God's presence, it's then and only then that we are able to come to Christ. To wash one's robes in the blood of the Lamb means that Christ's atoning death on the cross is our only hope and the hope for our cleansing. Look at it this way. The book of Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God never forgives us simply because he wants to be gracious. Yeah, I know. God is gracious. But God is also God. And that means that God's righteousness demands that sin be dealt with in justice. God never stops being just, as if he puts justice on hold so that he can be merciful. Now, that's not the case. If mercy is to be found, it can never be found without the strict demands of justice being served. The very essence of Christianity is this. Christ's death on the cross satisfies the righteous demands of God. And so the only way to stand before God with all of our sins is that the blood of Christ has washed us and made us clean. We must trust in his death on our behalf. And so John is told in unmistakable terms that the great multitude that stands in heaven, it only stands there because their clothes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So let's be clear. People don't miss out on heaven because they fail to believe in Jesus. People miss out on heaven because their clothes are unclean, because they're sinful. Nothing that's unclean or sinful can remain in God's presence. It's our sin, not our religion, that keeps us out of heaven. Christ's blood is the only cleansing agent. I know, I know someone's going to say, so you're saying that your religion is the only way to get to heaven. But if that's all that you're hearing, try listening again. You need to deal with your sin problem. You need a way of getting your clothing clean. And as far as I know, no other religion known to man tells you how to get your clothes clean. How can your sins be justly dealt with? No religion is capable of answering that question. But where religion failed, Christ succeeded by by satisfying the righteous demands of God with his own blood on the cross. Indeed, that's what Revelation says over and over again. Jesus is presented as the lamb who was slain, and by his blood, he has purchased men and women for God. So your task, if you accomplish nothing else in this life, is to wash your clothing in the blood of the Lamb. Confess your sins to him. Trust only in Christ's death on your behalf. So let's get back to the beginning of the paragraph. John has been witnessing to the great company of men and women, and one of the elders before the throne has asked him to answer the question, who is this great company before the throne? And he says, sir, you know. And in response, he is told that these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. Many Bible readers will immediately assume that he's referring to that seven-year period of time that has been called the Great Tribulation. 
And that phrase comes to us from the prophet Daniel, chapter 9, 24 to 27. And here now is one of the places where sincere Bible readers will differ. You know, for some, Daniel's 70th week, if you know that language, for them it refers to that period of time from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ. So for them, it's a symbolic number indicating the complete amount of time God has in mind. But for others, Daniel's 70th week, or 70th seven, if you will, refers to a literal seven-year period of time immediately preceding the coming of Christ. Now, to be clear where I stand on this issue, I do think there is coming a definitive period of time before the second coming of Christ, a period of time that some have called Satan's little season. And by that is meant that by God's wisdom, he has allowed a time at the end in which the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, will be revealed. There is a time yet to come when things become worse and when God will pour out judgments on this earth. But having said that, let's not have that issue, that is, the nature of Daniel's 70th week, prejudge how John will use the word great tribulation in this context, in this passage. It seems to me from reading this passage that John uses the phrase great tribulation in keeping with what he's describing here. And it seems to me that the phrase great tribulation can refer to the last seven years, but he could also use it to refer to the great trials and sufferings that accompany believers in every age in which they seek to be faithful to their Lord. And since John has been talking about reaching the world with the gospel, And since he's been talking about the martyrs for the whole period of church history, it seems to me that it's best to understand the phrase great tribulation in this particular passage as referring to the great warfare that believers face in all ages as they seek to remain faithful. And that seems to be the context. And so in answer to the question of who this company is, the answer is this is the sum total of all throughout the ages as Paul says, who have finished the race, have fought the good fight, have kept the faith even unto death. And so we're again reminded that our age is not unlike every other age in the history of the church. Whether it was the battle that the seven churches in Asia were facing, I mean the churches that received this book in Revelation in the first place, or or whether it's the battle that we're facing in Canada or in North America today, The battle not to give in to the spirit of relativism, the spirit of sexual uncleanness, the spirit of false teaching. I mean, the point is we're in battle and the great company in heaven is made up of those who have washed their garments in the blood of the lamb and those who would rather have Christ than the spirit of this age. And with that, we come to the end of Revelation 7. I'm reading verses 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And if you really think about it, you should immediately seize upon the contrast between what the followers of Jesus experience in this life and what they will experience in the life to come. In this life, great tribulation. You can't attach yourself to worldly wealth and success and fame and popularity and satisfaction of your desires and comfort and to expectations of fulfilled gratification. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
Paul said, if only in this life I have hoped in Christ, then I am of all men most to be pitied. If you want to be faithful to Christ, life here is going to be tough. How about the next life? The life to come, well, hunger ends. So does thirst. So do tears. Indeed, the Lamb will shepherd us to springs of living water. And with this comes an overwhelming realization. Every one of us will have to decide which life we want. Shall we seek comfort in this life, or shall we seek it in the one to come? For if you seek it in this life, you can't have it in the one to come. And if you seek it in the one to come, you are promised that in this life there will be great tribulation. The dichotomy is complete. There is no middle ground. The seven churches who received this book immediately saw the implication. They were being persecuted, and they came to see that with the rise of the emperor Domitian, the imperial might of the Roman Empire stood against them. Life was going to be tough. But there was one seated upon a greater throne than the one that was in Rome, and he promised them springs of living water. They would have to daily decide which world did they want. And it's the same with us. Yes, we are living in a society in which the elites of our society are now looking at the Christian faith with increasing disdain and even hatred. And we will have to decide, which world do you want? Who shall be your people, the company of overcomers or the company of this world? Shall we be shepherded by our culture or shall we be shepherded by the Lamb? I urge you, my listener, make your decision to belong to the company of overcomers. Be with them and count them to be your people of God. John, this past year, we've been inviting people to invest in the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. They include our daily Bible teaching program with you, a Laugh Again, an admittedly unique ministry featuring Phil Calloway, but one that is profoundly connecting with people in their walk with Christ, and In Doubt. What an impact In Doubt has made and, and is making in the lives of young people as they candidly discuss very real, relevant, and raw issues young people face. But I also want to acknowledge that there are many ministries worthy of God's people investing in. But if I were to ask you directly why people should invest in the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, what might you say? Well, I think I'd give a biblical answer that comes from 1 Corinthians 12. God has appointed in the church, first of all, apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and then all the other gifts. You know, the apostles and prophets have given us the truth once for all laid down. That's the Bible. Teachers are called upon to explain the Bible and its significance in every generation. The rest of the gifts, or I might say, Ben, as you've said it, all of the other ministries that are out there, they're doing a good work. But if we are devoid of Bible teaching, all of the other ministries will eventually fall apart as well. This Bible teaching ministry is the staple. It's the groundwork. It's the basis upon which other ministries flow. And so I want to say that a ministry like this one is worthy of support because it teaches the Bible. The revelation of God's Word must be heard. This is as necessary as it can possibly be. And Ben, I want to say everybody says their ministry is most important, but I want to say from the Scripture— Bible teaching is the staple upon which the church of Jesus Christ is strengthened. Okay, so why specifically Back to the Bible? Well, I want to say Back to the Bible is a uniquely Canadian ministry. It reaches Canadians, it's by Canadians, it's to Canadians, and we are unapologetically scriptural in reaching out to Canadians in this country. 
Thanks so much, John. And and please consider helping us towards our fiscal year-end goal right here at Back to the Bible Canada. Your gift would mean so much. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, well, we teach the Bible.